0: You're listening to The Jewish Truth
1: Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thank you for joining me today. I want to open up with a couple of words on the judicial reform situation. About a week ago, the Knesset passed what they called the reasonableness clause, which means that the courts can no longer block a Knesset bill by saying, oh, this is unreasonable. That's what the courts were able to do. They could just say, this bill, it's unreasonable. And obviously that's something totally arbitrary. Anybody could say something's unreasonable according to his worldview. So what the Knesset did was that they passed a law that the courts can't do that anymore. They can't just say it's unreasonable. Now, the fact is it's really no great victory because the courts have a myriad of ways to block Knesset bills without using the unreasonableness clause. They have this thing called the disproportionate law that they've used a few times, and the slew of other ways that they can make sure that a Knesset bill that doesn't find favor in their eyes won't pass through. So there's really no big change here. It's more like a symbolic victory type of thing that with all the pressure and all the threats of insurrection and all the noise, the Knesset in any case passed this bill. And again, it's kind of meaningless unless they continue and pass some more laws that will diminish the judicial tyranny that you have in Israel today. But I didn't want to talk about that. I wanted to talk about something else that's kind of popped up in the background of all these threats by the elites of Israeli society, especially the pilots and the doctors. Ever since these idea of pilots threatened to refuse orders if the judicial reforms are passed through, reports have surfaced and a lot of witnesses are coming forward with all kinds of examples where in the past, IDF pilots, they refused orders when those orders went against their conscience. And one example is an IDF major, his name is Dr. Ofer Drori, and he says that in the second Lebanon war, he saw that a couple IDF pilots at critical times refused to bomb certain targets that they were commanded to bomb. Now these pilots, they're supposed to bomb these buildings so that when the ground soldiers enter these buildings, you won't have terrorists with guns waiting for them. And Drori says there were a couple of pilots who refused to bomb these buildings or they would purposely miss their target. He says that one of these pilots said, I'm an architect. I build cities. I don't destroy them. And he gives other examples where the IDF pilots refused to do what they were supposed to do on a moral basis. Now, there's another new service, which is called Hakola he Yehudi, the Jewish voice and this new service, Akol Ud, it was established a couple of years ago by the guys in Yitzhar in this area. And there's a couple of good organizations that have sprouted up in the hilltops, such as Avoda Ivrit, Jewish Labor, which is an organization which encourages and strengthens the need for Jewish labor. And they have listings of companies in all areas of life, which hire Jews only, so that if somebody wants to encourage Avoda Ivrit, he wants to give Parnassah, to a Jew and not hire Arabs, the organization Avada has listings of companies who hire just Jews. That's another good organization. Maybe we'll talk about it another time. And by the way, it's very relevant because the last terrorist attack we had in Malay Adumim, there were Arabs working there. That attack was carried out by Arabs who worked in Malaya So a lot of Jews are looking to hire Jews and not Arabs. Jewish labor, Avada But we'll put that on hold I want to go back to a report that Hakoli Yud put out this past week. Another story about a pilot, this time in an IDF helicopter, who refused to shoot at terrorists who had attacked Kevri Yosef, Yosef's tomb in Shechem. And we're talking about the beginning of the year 2000, what was called the Second Intifada, if you remember. And what happened was the Arabs attacked, amongst other places, Kever Yosef in and there were not enough soldiers there to hold the fort, and the Arabs in the end overran the place. They killed a Druze soldier whose name was Mitrat Yosef, and it was kind of like Israel's version of Benghazi. In Benghazi, American citizens were abandoned, and army didn't come to help them. Well, in this situation, Israeli soldiers were also not given the necessary help they were needed to be saved. And so the following story was exposed by the Koli Yudi, And this is what it says, paraphrase from the Hebrew. It says like this. During that time, while Kevri Yosef was being attacked, Jewish residents who were on the site and soldiers were witness to the discussions that took place between the Machat, who is the brigadier general on the ground responsible for the safety of the place, and the pilot of the battle helicopter that was hovering above Kevri Yosef at the time the Arabs were attacking it. And so a resident from Yitzhar, his name is Nere Ofan. I happen to know him. And he's more credible than any source the leftist media rags can come up with. Nere Ofan explains what he heard in the desperate conversations of the Machat, who again was the general on the ground responsible for the safety of Kevri Yosef and the helicopter pilot. And this is what he says. The Machat, the general there, was demanding that the pilot of the helicopter begin shooting on the terrorists who were attacking the area of Yosef's tomb. He was demanding that the helicopter start shooting to protect the undermanned soldiers who were guarding Kevin Yosef below. And the pilot wasn't doing it. At the beginning, he claimed that he couldn't see well enough because the Arabs were burning tires and the smoke impaired his visibility. And so he didn't want to bomb indiscriminately because he didn't see well enough. But when the general on the ground over and over again ordered him to start shooting. In the end, he said he can't shoot because he was worried that maybe he would be hurting people who weren't part of the riots. And so he didn't shoot. And that explains really why what happened. Why didn't the IDF protect the few soldiers that were there? Now we get it. Why did they let that Drew soldier die of his wounds? Because they were afraid to indiscriminately bomb what they call innocence. So we see here that these pilots... They're ideologues. And so now all this stuff is coming out. Jonathan Pollard was interviewed a couple of weeks ago on this station. And he was asked that if he was in charge, what would he do? What actions would he take to these pilots and these doctors who are threatening an insurrection if the judicial reforms are passed? So let's see what he says here. First, he's going to talk about the doctors. Here it goes.
0: As far as the medical field, again, as I said, I come from a medical family. And as far as I'm concerned, if you sacrifice your patients on the altar of your political ideology, you're not a doctor. You're no better than Mengele. What I would do, you take their licenses permanently. That's it. You don't practice medicine anymore.
1: Okay, the idea. What about
0: the idea? You mobilize you actually mobilize reservists and you make them sign a statement. That under, you know, you will defend the country no matter what the nature of the democratically elected government is, period, full stop. If they don't agree to sign, then they should be court-martialed, stripped of their rank, imprisoned, have their pensions taken away, and basically close the door on them, and that's it. They are subversive elements attempting what's called in German a putsch. Very interesting term, but it applies to these, these guys. These babies, these crybabies that that say, if the government, if I don't agree with the government, then the country can go to hell. The army doctors saying, some of them, for example, we won't treat military patients. What? You won't treat a wounded soldier? You won't fly an airplane in defense of our country, your country? Then we don't need you. Goodbye. The country, under God's grace, will survive quite well without you. Get rid of them. Just get them out of the army, but I want them in prison. I I want them broken publicly.
1: That was Jonathan Pollard. And, you know, by the way, these pilots that we're talking about, most of them, they haven't flown a plane in years. We're talking about ultra cockers who haven't seen the cockpit of an airplane in decades. And leading them all, by the way, is Ehud Barak, the former prime minister and big army guy. And Barack and Ehud Olmert, another former prime minister, they're driving this whole thing. They're the ones who say they're going to refuse orders. And it's kind of funny because they're like 80 years old. So it's not like they're going to suit up for war anytime soon. But Ehud Barak, he's a dangerous man. He's very rich. And he has connections with wealthy people. Like He had connections to Epstein and others of that ilk. And he's raised like $40 million already for this. And in Israel, that's an unheard of sum. But again, Barack is well-connected. He's been in the army forever, so he has connections to all the army upper ranks and elites. And so all that just gives you an idea, you know, what kind of people were running our country? I don't know if you know about this, but the fact is many of the Israeli leftists are leaving the country. You know, it's not like the hard-left Americans who said that if Trump wins, I'm leaving the country, and they didn't really leave. But in Israel, they're actually leaving. A lot of these hardcore leftists, a movement to Thailand and all these places in Europe. You know, all those countries who persecuted the Jews throughout the years. And I remember there used to be a stigma for somebody who left the land of Israel. Like when you come to the land of Israel, it's called Aliyah. And those who would leave Israel, they would be called Yordim, Yerida, they're going down. When you come to Israel, you're going up. But somebody who leaves Israel, it's like you betrayed it. They were called Yordim. They're making Yerida, they're going down. It's kind of a betrayal. And they would often feel guilty about it. And they'd make excuses and say, no, I'm coming back. I'm just, you know, leaving for a while. But now there's no stigma. We don't even call them Yordim anymore, the ones who went down. That would be considered, you know, racist or hate speech. So you don't see that language, Yordim. But the fact is many are leaving. It's not a joke. And you know, there's a hint of that in the Haftorah we read this Peshabbat. Shabbat. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 17. And again, we read this just a couple of days ago. It's just like this. Those who destroy you and those who ruin you, they're going to go forth from you. That is, they're going to leave you. So there you got it. Those leftist anti-Jewish Jews who hate the religion, who hate the whole concept of a Jewish state and want to turn this country into a Hebrew speaking woke Times Square. Those are the destroyers from within. And it says, they shall go forth from you. They're going to leave you. And so it is. The destroyers are departing. You know, on a side note, Rabbi Kahana used to bring this verse when he would speak in the Knesset. When Rabbi Kahana would speak in the Knesset, most of the Knesset hall would empty out. So not to give him credibility or legitimacy, they would walk out and he would speak to a practically empty Knesset. And as they were walking out, he would say, <laughs> your destroyers they shall depart. That is, all those Jewish destroyers of Israel, they're going to leave. And in this case, they're going to leave the Knesset halls. So that's it for the news. And I want to move on to something important. And that's the Parsha we read this past Shabbat, Parsha Ekev. You see, the entire book of Devarim, book of Deuteronomy, it's really a book of our national policy in the land of Israel. What should our policy be? And so the entire book of Deuteronomy and especially Parsha Ekev centers around the importance of conquering the land. It's just all over the place. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. In chapter seven of Deuteronomy, when the Lord brings you to the land you're entering so that you can occupy it. In Hebrew, the word to occupy, which means to expel the inhabitants, which means you shall uproot the many nations there. Don't make a treaty with them. That's our source that were not allowed to give the nations any kind of hold into the land, any kind of karka, any kind of parnassa, lotechanem. And a couple of verses later it says, Vachalet Kola amim, and you shall consume all the nations. And literally, Vachaltet kol amim" literally means you shall eat the nations, you shall eat them up for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then it says, "Hachrim tachrim," you shall utterly wipe them out. And tens of times in the book of Deuteronomy, we have that expression of harashtim Virishta to dispossess them. Now, why is this so central? What is it? We love blood and guts and violence? No, it's just that if we don't do this, we will not be able to live in our homeland and establish a Jewish society, a Jewish culture, the way we're supposed to. Because the ultimate purpose of the Jewish faith is to be a light unto the nations. Now, how do you do that? Well, you don't do it by living in Poland or America and being an ethical person and people say, oh, the Jews are such good people. That's a very small Kiddush Hashem. We're supposed to make a national Kiddush Hashem. I'm talking on a macro level, okay? And that's being a light unto the nations, which can only be done in the land of Israel when we set up our Torah society. And then the Gentiles look at us and say, wow, that's the way it's supposed to be. Now I know that there's a God in Israel. Now I know that the God of the Jews is the real thing, that the Torah is truth. Now you can't get there without first conquering the nations because you got to set up your Torah state. You got to build your temple. This is supposed to be the purpose of Judaism. How do we end our prayers? The prayer aleinu, aleinu What do we say? And all humanity will call upon your name. All the world's inhabitants will recognize and know you. And to you every knee shall bend and every tongue shall swear. And everyone will accept upon themselves the yoke of your kingship. So that's the ultimate goal. That's how we end all our prayers with those words. So again, how do you get there? Only by kibbush arets, conquering the land, setting up a Torah society, building your temple. And eventually the world comes to that recognition. And by the way, in these days where the world has become so small that everybody knows what everyone else is doing, every country now can know what's going on because of the technology. You can see how the Kiddush Hashem is a lot easier now that things get publicized much easier. And so the Kiddush Hashem will get publicized much easier. You see, most people think that Judaism, it's a religion, right? A religion. Religion in Hebrew is that. That's how you say religion, that. Do you know that the word that doesn't appear in the entire Bible, except for one place, esh dat l'amo, and there the word dat means law, doesn't mean religion, because we're not a religion. Judaism isn't a religion, it's a religion nation, where a people who are commanded to live in a specific land and apply the Torah in that land with all these national mitzvot that are written in the book of Deuteronomy, applying the laws of war, amalchemet rishut, amalchemet mitzvah, an obligatory war, a non-mandatory war, all these are part of Torah. These are national mitzvot, which can only be performed in the land of Israel. Now I can understand why these were forgotten, because if you're in the exile for 2000 years, obviously a lot of the stuff in the book of Deuteronomy is irrelevant. You have no land, you have no army. So of course what happens then, we reduce the Torah to the bedroom and the bathroom and the kitchen. That's what happened in the exile. But now that we're back, the book of Deuteronomy becomes supremely relevant because there really are nations here that we have to conquer right now, today. So again, the book of Deuteronomy, it's our national guideline of how to run a country. And as a matter of fact, back in 1992, Rabbi ben Kahana, Hashem Yukon domo he ran for the Knesset. And what did he do? He took uh, Chumash, the five books of Moses, and on the cover of the Khumush, we printed the emblem of the movement, Kahanachai. The emblem was a star and a fist. And we wrote on the cover, Matzah Tnuwat Kahanachai, platform of the Kahanachai movement. That was our platform, the Chumash. And this was also, of course, to convey an idea. Back in 1988, the Knesset banned the Kah party of Rabbi Mer Kahana. They said it was racist. And Ben Yamin Kahana wanted to prove that when they disqualified Rabbi Meir Kahana in 1988, they were really disqualifying Judaism. They were banning Torah, not Kahana. So in the 92 elections, he took a Chumash, he went to the Knesset committee, said, this is our platform, ban it. And they did. Of course they banned it. And we knew they would. By the way, I still have one of those chumushes with the Kach emblem. It's probably a collector's item. Maybe I'll sell it on Amazon for a couple of bucks. But going back to what I said, Judaism is so different than, let's say, Islam or Christianity. Because in Judaism, like I said, we're a religion nation that's commanded to live in a specific land and set up Torah law in that land. Now, you don't have that in Islam. According to the religion of Islam, you don't have to live in Mecca. You got to visit Mecca, maybe. They want to conquer the whole world, okay, for another reason. But that's something else. There's no commandment for them to live in a particular country. Same thing with Christianity. There's no commandment for Christians to live in Italy. There's separation of church and state. But in Judaism, there's no separation of church and state. So Judaism, it's a land-based religion. And the fact is the national mitzvot, they really take prominence over the personal mitzvot. Like if you read Tanakh, the Bible, which was a time when Jews were normal before exile, you read it, you don't see where King David or Joshua were laying to fill in, or eating kosher food or carrying a lulav and an etrog. Now, of course they were, but the Bible doesn't record it. What does it record? It records the wars. It records the national life in the land of Israel. And by the way, if you want to learn Bible the way it should be learned, you can tune into my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. You can Google that. And in almost every Shior, you'll get this idea. And I don't put a spin on it or anything like that. We just read the verses, the simple understanding of the verses with the commentaries, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Now I want to go back to something really interesting that we read in Parshat Ekev, after giving over the commandment to conquer the nations, and expel them from the land. It says like this in chapter seven, verse seventeen. And if you say to yourself, "There's so many nations there, they're so numerous." How will I be able to drive them out? That's a good question. It's a question we would ask today. There's so many Arabs here. How are I going to throw them out? It's not realistic. Anyway, what is the Torah answer? Do not be afraid of them. Remember what God did to Paro and all the rest of Egypt. Remember the great miracles that you saw with your own eyes, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm. With God, your Lord brought you out of Egypt. So the Torah is saying, you don't think you could pull it off? Then you forgot history. Remember what I did in Egypt? Remember those miracles? Well, I did it back then. I could do it again. And that's what we have to do today. We don't have to go back to Egypt to see the miracles. Let's look at the 1948 war and 1967 war. Those were miracles. All the nations went against us and we won. So what we're supposed to do is to recall those miracles and internalize it. And we should study those wars, the Six-Day War especially, the miracles that took place. And that will imbue within us the bitachon and the emunah to say, if Hashem did it back in 67, then he could do it again. And that's one of the reasons that we say halal on Independence Day and on the anniversary of the Six-Day War. Because what you're supposed to do is you say halal, you praise Hashem, you recall the miracle and you internalize the miracle and it gives you the bitachon to say, he did it then, he can do it again. And that's also the reason we have this concept that when we pray, we want to lismoch gu'ulalat filah We want to adjoin redemption to our prayer. What does that mean? We want to lismoch gu'ulalat filah, We want to adjoin redemption to our prayer. Because what do we say in our prayers right before the Shmona prayer? What do we say? Baruch ata Hashem ga'al Yisrael. Blessed is the Lord who redeemed Israel redeemed Israel, Gaal Yisrael, redeemed in the past. And then when we pray Shmon Asrei, what do we say? Bruch HaTashem, Ge'el Yisrael, blessed is the Lord who redeems Israel, which is in the present tense. So we're adjoining Ge'ulah we're saying just like he was Gaal Yisrael, he redeemed Israel, I know in my heart that he can do it again, Ge'el Yisrael. So again, we look back at our past, at the miracles that were, and that gives us the encouragement of the koach to continue onward. But what's interesting in the verses we read, where we said, there's so many nations, how can I throw them out? That's kind of unusual because usually the Torah doesn't do that. Usually the Torah gives us a commandment, whether it's easy or hard, and we do it. You don't have in the Torah a question, well, if I observe Shabbat, And I don't work on the seventh day. How am I going to eat? How am I going to make a livelihood? Nor does it say, how am I going to get an etrog? They're very expensive. But here you do have this question. How am I going to do it? And there's one other place where you have it as well. If you go to Pashat Bahar, when we're given the commandment of Shvi'it, that in the seventh year, we're not allowed to harvest. We're not allowed to plant. We're not allowed to work the fields. There as well, we have a similar question. It says, if I don't plant, and I don't work the land. What am I going to eat in the seventh year? What am I going to eat? Just like it says here about conquering the land, there's so numerous donations, how am I going to drive them out? So regarding the mitzvah shemitah shvi'it, what does the Torah say? Don't worry about it. I'm going to give you a blessing in the sixth year that's going to hold you over for the next three years. So we see two different places in the Torah where we ask the question, how are we going to do this mitzvah? It's very difficult. And it's not for nothing that these are two mitzvot that are connected to the land of Israel. Because real tests in emuna come along with living in the land of Israel. Let's go to shviit, the mitzvah of not working the land in the seventh year. A Jew in those days was very connected to his land. He had his portion. We were an agricultural society and his land was everything. So it's a real big test to just leave his land for a full year. That's a Nisayon. And so is, of course, The mitzvah of conquering the land from the nations. Another big test. And they're difficult because they involve the land of Israel. You see, only people living in the land of Israel are given the big tests. The Jews in Chutzlaretz, outside the land, not much is expected from them. They don't have to conquer the land. They don't have to do Shvit. But the Jews in the land of Israel, they get big tests. So much so that they have to say, how am I going to do it? And Hashem says, you just got to believe. So that's my hardcore Aliyah pitch. I'm saying, come to Israel and suffer. What I mean is make Aliyah and take upon yourself some tough tests because at the end of your life, you want to be able to say, that was a life. Let's do it again. That's it for me. If you want to hear more, you can listen to my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. It's a podcast on Spotify and other platforms for a true authentic study of the Bible. We're in safe shul now. What a book. And I'll be back, God willing, same time, same station.